Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm good. It's a hot summer day, and it feels like the perfect time to talk about a classic Southern novel. Yes, Their Eyes Were Watching God is the perfect book to discuss on a sweltering summer day. I am really excited to get into this one with you. Me too. We, I think we've mentioned this in previous episodes, like at least our summer preview, that this is one that neither of us have read all the way through. And I don't think that's a first for us, but it's pretty infrequent. So I'm excited to get to chat about this, both kind of coming from a really fresh take on it. Yeah, it it might be a first for us. I'm racking my brain trying to think of another book that that was true for. And I can't off the top of my head. I should have read this all the way through, I will say. I was assigned Their Eyes Were Watching God in high school. And I thought that I'd read it all the way through. And when I (laughs) was at my mom's this past week, I found my copy from high school. And there was a little bookmark, just a little roll of paper sitting in it right before chapter (laughs) 16. And I think that's... That must have been where high school Sarah stopped, which was not uncommon for me. I, I was notorious for not finishing books in high school, even when I made it most of the way through and even when I liked the book. Same. There was just too much to read. Yeah. Yeah. There was too much to read. And that kind of resentfulness of somebody telling you, you have to read something. I will say at this point, we've covered several of the books I've been assigned in high school, and I think I have been too hard on my high school English teachers. I think that they assigned me some really good books and I just maybe wasn't in the place in my life to appreciate them or just can tend to be dismissive of the things I have to read. Oh, same. I definitely tell me to read it and I'm like, eh, it's got to be my idea. (laughs) Yeah. And now here we are. It's our idea to read Their Eyes Were Watching God and I enjoyed it a lot more this time around. I really loved it. So let's give a really quick summary and then get into our experiences with reading this classic, amazing classic book. So Their Eyes Were Watching God is Zora Neale Hurston's 1937 novel. And I think if this were written today, it could totally fit under women's fiction or the contemporary literature category. It starts out and we follow Janie Crawford from her childhood, kind of like adolescence, puberty, all the way into middle age. And we follow her life, her loves, her journey to find herself and find romance. And it's just amazing. I loved this book. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I think we should say also up front that we will definitely be going into some spoilers in this episode. 
there's just so much we want to talk about with all of the characters. But also, you and I both did the same thing going into reading this book, which was we each independently decided to read a summary before we really started reading the book. And that worked well for us. Definitely. So make your own choice. But we think it definitely benefited our reading to know the summary going into it. So spoilers in this episode, we think will be totally okay if you want to listen to this before reading. Yes. So Sarah, you mentioned that you read this in high school, at least partway, and you know you didn't finish it, but what did you think when you returned to it? Did you remember it at all? So I remembered, of course, I remembered Janie Crawford. I remembered Tea Cake. And I have a theory about why I stopped where I did, but I'm going to hold on to that till we get a little bit further into our discussion. I really loved revisiting it. I, I will say that I think part of one of the reasons I probably struggled in high school and, and still I find this a, a challenge as a reader is reading the dialect, which I am fully putting on myself as a reader. It, I don't have a good ear for language, and so reading dialect can be a challenge for me. But I found that I really settled into the rhythm of it this time and was completely blown away by Hurston's lyrical writing, her descriptions of the South, her descriptions of emotion and femininity, and also how kind of ahead of its time this book feels in terms of the way it depicts feminine sensuality and sexuality. And I really loved it this time around. Same. I don't remember reading this for school at all. I feel like I have read excerpts along the way in various classes, and I've enjoyed Hurston's short stories, but I have never read one of her novels. And (laughs) you can tell from my copy that almost every other page is dog-eared, and that's the sign of a really, really good read. Yes. I listened to some of this on audio this time, and... I really enjoyed that it's very well suited for audio, but I would be, you know, listening and cooking and just think, oh, I, I need to mark that. (laughs) So I, I don't know. I, I would still recommend the audio. I think that was excellent. And it was a way to get a little bit more lost in the story for me. But there was so many times I was struck by Hurston's writing and not having my pencil in hand made me frustrated. Yes. The passages where she's describing introspection and almost like this sacred divine femininity are so powerful and so good. This is certainly this novel is super quotable. This is the um, novel where Hurston has her famous there are years that ask and years that answer quote, but that's like that's just the beginning. There are so many other amazing highlightable passages in this book. And she really comes out of the gate strong with this one. It's very early on that she has all of those lush, sensual, almost sexy descriptions of the pear tree and blossoming flowers and Janie luxuriating under this tree and wondering what love is. It's it's really mind-blowing, her writing. 
It is. So let's go back to talking a little bit about the dialect. This is something, this is a tool, this is her style, this is something that we find in most of Hurston's writing. And I think it's in part because she is an anthropologist. And so when she's trying to capture a community, she's really trying to capture the culture and the history and the people in a vivid and realistic way, which I totally think she does in this novel. And dialect is definitely part of that. So that's just a little bit of background of, you know, sort of the the why. But um, I can see where high schoolers would struggle with reading it. It's like Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. It's English, but it is written in a way that, you know, the spelling is different. So your brain's just like, "Hmm, that's slightly unfamiliar enough that I have to go slower. And I'm not great at slowing down as a reader. I'm a speed reader. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like you said, that's, that's on me as a reader. So being forced to slow down and really play the dialogue in my head instead of just letting my eyes breeze past it was part of the experience of reading this. And I also just totally recognize that as a Midwestern white woman, Southern black dialogue is, you know, that's just a cultural struggle for me. So getting over that is not something that I would ever want to complain about or discourage any reader from. But just, you know, recognizing that, I think that's part of why audiobook is probably a great way to go. Yeah, audiobook was great. And I tend to listen to my audiobooks pretty fast. And I listened to this at regular 1.0 speed. And I just loved letting the language wash over me. And I think you make a really good point about if you're reading it on the page, saying every word aloud, aloud in your head, whatever that means. But I, I, I think you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Instead of, like you said, just letting your eyes skim across the page, it can feel stressful when you're somebody who likes to speed read and get things done. And But then you can like take a breath and just decide to luxuriate in the language. And it almost adds to the tone of the book this like slower pace to to life and that introspection that you mentioned. And I think it's really well suited for a slow read. It is. And I like I have to admit too that sometimes I would skim because I wanted to get back to Janie. A lot of her the focus on her, a lot of her scenes and her inner thoughts aren't written in the dialogue and dialect. Those are just Hurston's prose, and those were my favorite. I just wanted to be in Janie's head forever. Yeah. But the scenes with dialogue are so funny. Yes. The mule scene is hilarious. The jokes that the characters toss back and forth are funny, and it just paints this picture of a community that's really vivid and just such a good mix of comedy in this novel. Totally. And the audiobook 100% helped me pick up the humor and enjoy the way that she was using the dialogue to characterize individuals. Like I could hear it more in the way the narrator was voicing these characters. 
Okay, so I can just tell based on the way that we've been talking about Janie that we both have real fondness for her. So I think that we should get into talking about Janie Crawford. Oh, I love her so much. I don't even know where to start with my love for her, but I guess I'll just start. I guess we should just start at the beginning. Yeah. There's kind of a little um, frame story to this novel where she begins the book she returns to Eatonville her not quite hometown but her adopted hometown almost and she's talking to her friend Phoebe and Janie's been gone for a few years and Phoebe is asking her kind of what happened and and that both prompts Janie to remember like the whole of her life and then also leads to just a really interesting structure of the novel where you know that she's relaying her past to her friend. I was so endeared to Janie right from the start because I guess I'm always drawn to the romantic dreamer characters, the Anne of Green Gables of the world, and the opening scenes when she's talking about her childhood or when she's talking about you know her first kiss and talking with her grandmother she's dreaming of this beautiful romance and her grandmother's smashing those dreams right away yeah and right away you just feel for the girl yeah I agree her romantic dreaminess is so endearing and I think a lot of readers can probably connect with that and she just she in some ways knows what she wants from a very young age she just doesn't quite know what the practicalities of what she wants are or how to get it or how to sustain it but she wants she wants this like real true love and to feel valued and to feel precious I think in a way that she doesn't feel with her grandmother. I have a passage. It's towards the end of that, after Janie ends up getting married and grandma has sort of won. (laughs) Um, And so Janie's in this loveless marriage, but she knows it was the practical thing to do. Her grandma was concerned about her safety and her being taken care of. And Hurston writes, So Janie waited a bloom time, and a green time, and an orange time. And what a way to describe the seasons, first of all. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But when the pollen again gilded the sun and sifted down on the world, she began to stand around the gate and expect things. What things? She didn't know exactly. Her breath was gusty and short. She knew things that nobody had ever told her. For instance, the words of the trees and the wind. She often spoke to the falling seeds and said, Ah, hope you fall on soft ground. Because she had heard seeds saying that to each other as they passed. She knew the world was a stallion rolling in the blue pasture of ether. She knew that God tore down the old world every evening and built a new one by sunup. It was wonderful to see it take form with the sun and emerge from the gray dust of its making. The familiar people and things had failed her, so she hung over the gate and looked up the road towards way off. She knew now that marriage did not make love. Janie's first dream was dead, so she became a woman. Her writing is 
stunning. And I can't really compare it to any other authors. It is so uniquely her own voice and the way she uses color and nature imagery, but but unlike anything else I've ever read where you can feel and smell and but you know exactly how she's using it symbolically. That whole paragraph really depicts in a much more beautiful and clear way that Simone de Beauvoir idea of one isn't born but becomes a, a woman and how how it is that that sacrifice and taking on the emotional labor required of of women that ends girlhood and individuality for so many at least literary women and and I think women in real life too absolutely and to backtrack I mean we're speaking of this as like a universal female experience and to some extent like it is and I really connected with that but it's very much a black feminist novel and speaking to the unique experiences of Janie as a black woman. And her grandma tells her that black women are the mules of the world, Mm -hmm. meaning more than anyone. So more than white women or anyone else, black women are the ones carrying these things on their backs. They take the emotional burdens. They are burdened by what the world places on their shoulders. And so I... I just had to bring up that passage. That's another really famous passage, um, but reading it within the context of the book and seeing it play out is so different from just reading it in, you know, an essay here or there or something. You make a really good point about how I think so many women can read this and connect with Janie, but it's still important to come back to the book as a Black feminist text. So we've been gushing over how much we love Janie Crawford, her characterization, the way that Hurston writes her character and her inner thoughts, but I think we should probably talk about some of Janie's relationships because that is the that's the story here is her experiences within different relationships. And a big feminist criticism I've seen of the novel is that you know, this is a feminist text, but yet it's all about her relationships with men. And I mm. I don't love that criticism. I don't think I agree with it because I think that, like, that's, yeah, that's part of it. Through her relationships with men, Hurston is showing the inequalities and the feminist issues that she wants to highlight. But that's so interesting. So I, I that point actually makes me think back to your previous point and another critique I've seen about this book which I also don't agree with is some other Harlem Renaissance writers wanted Hurston to be more overt in her political commentary about race in the novel so that's that's interesting I mean through I just feel like as a reader through Janie Crawford, this black woman's life and all of her dreams and desires and loves and pains, Hurston is commenting so clearly on race and gender and feminism that I don't, 
I don't find those criticisms valid for my experience of reading it, at least. But let's get into these relationships. And listeners, if you have read or do read Their Eyes Were Watching God, we will certainly be curious to know what you think about these ideas and whether you think the focus on relationships changes your view of it. But there are three primary, there are three marriages in the book. Janie's married three times, which anytime as an English teacher, I see a three, it just feels important. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So first, the marriage that we were referencing with Janie's first dream being dead is her marriage to Logan. And this is the man that her grandmother picked out for her to marry. And he's much older than her. And really, she's just unsatisfied because there's no spark. Yeah, yeah. And I I, I love that. I mean, I, I think that it's tempting to see her grandmother as really wanting the best for her and wanting stability but I love how Hurston resists that and trusts Janie's intuition and this isn't the right relationship for her there isn't that passion she knows again she's she's seen the love that she wants just through the form of the natural world and she doesn't have that here so then Jody comes along and sweeps her off her feet quite a bit sweeps her off her feet yes but I feel like as readers we already know this is too early for our lovely Mm -hmm. Janie to be perfectly happy so she she runs away from her first husband they get married and they move to Eatonville and basically Jody's this super ambitious man he basically builds this town from the ground up Yeah, part of what he sort of woos her with is this story of, I'm going to take you and move you to a town that is our people, just made up a town of black people, and we are going to make our community, and we're going to found our town, and we're going to live there and be successful. And he goes to that town. There are people there already, but he sort of gathers everyone and says, this is going to be a town, and we should really have a mayor. And everyone (laughs) goes, well then you can do that. (laughs) So he ends up being the mayor and owning a shop. And so they, between him and Janie, they are sort of the first couple of the town. But she's kind of frustrated because the attention's always on him. He's always making the decisions. He's always making the speeches. She gets no opportunity to have her own identity and selfhood and personhood. And she gets really frustrated in that marriage. Yeah, I I think Hurston really masterfully includes so much symbolism in this book in really natural ways. So I love kind of the dual symbolism of Janie wanting to have a voice and not having it. So there's that scene that you alluded to where Somebody says to Janie and and Mrs. Mayor, like, your turn to make a speech. And she she hadn't thought about whether she wanted to make a speech or not. But Jody steps in and says, that's not what women are for. My wife is not making a speech. And he silences her. And then the other symbolic oppression of 
Janie by Jody is that he makes her cover her beautiful hair. He's very jealous of the attention that Janie might get from other men, and so he requires her to to cover her hair at all times. And that's a very that's a very biblical allusion to women covering their hair and women's hair being their pride and I I find that to be really interesting because faith isn't a really specific theme in this book, but there is definitely sort of a thread of some of those biblical illusions and spirituality, and that's definitely one of them. Totally, yeah. I, I, I think, like you said, it's really much more about that sacred feminine. So in this second marriage, Janie... She ends up, well, she ends up escaping that first marriage and then she ends up escaping the second marriage. And it's really just that she sticks it out all the way until the end, until Jody dies. Yeah. And, and that, I think, is the lowest point in the, the story for Janie. And in many ways, Jody has literally and figuratively beaten her down, where she just decides to keep her head down do as she's asked, and hide her real self. And then when he dies, she is pretty happy about that. I love the line where I forget who it is that sort of asks her about, like, are you sure that you've been mourning enough? And Janie says, I'm pretty sure that you should only mourn for as long as your grief lasts. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. And she does stick around for a while and she runs the store and she really enjoys this independence. She has a very revered role in the town now because with her husband dead and she's still sort of in this, I don't know, this higher place in the town where they're really honoring his memory by respecting her and... um, she owns the main shop, so <laughs> they need yeah. her. And she just kind of enjoys a little bit of that freedom and authority, but it's not enough. She still wants that romance, which I can admire. I I can see where a lot of readers might just think like, no, Janie, just you know, run your store and enjoy and live your free life by yourself without a man. But I can totally respect her desire for romance and her desire to share her life with someone and to really have that fulfillment that she's been looking for. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's just that that's her character. And if Janie was the financially ambitious career driven, then then great. But she... She wants romance. She wants love. And into her store walks tea cake. Yes. And she is like taken right away. And we can tell that this is much different from any of her other relationships. Yes. And it seems like they really build a friendship first, which I enjoyed. Yeah, I agree. He is 12 years younger than her. He's very poor. Janie is a little bit concerned or you know she in the back of her mind she's wondering if he's after her her money so she takes it a little bit slow and yeah they do build they they talk so much we get lots of dialogue between them and just mentions of them 
talking all night and it just feels like this real emotional bond. But ultimately, this relationship doesn't really work out either. And I'm guessing maybe that's partly where you stopped Yep, for high school, Sarah, because <laughs> I can imagine high school Chelsea being really mad and upset with yep. this book for the direction that it takes in the final third. But as an adult, I didn't mind it. Yes. I think you, you are exactly right. I, I And again, I don't remember, but seeing where that bookmark was and trying to remember what I thought about tea cake. I'm pretty sure high school me was like, this relationship sucks too. And Mm -hmm. he's out all night gambling and just not being okay with that. And, And I like, I'm not okay with the way he, he treats her, but I think that high school me couldn't understand the nuance of the relationship and how, I don't I just how Janie felt about it. I I was only thinking about how I felt about it. So ultimately Tea Cake passes away too. He falls ill and actually goes mad and Janie kills him in self-defense. And she always still thinks of him with fondness even though he you know went mad and tried to hurt her. And so I think that the ending helps provide some of that nuance of the relationship of, you know, she doesn't seem to regret killing him because she saved herself. Right. She knows it was the right thing to do, but she misses him and his memory lives on with her. So it is a really complicated relationship. Yeah, I think it was much too complicated for 16 or 17-year-old me to understand. I in some ways read what happens to tea cake symbolically or I'm mm-hmm. at least playing around with this idea of so he's bitten by a rabid dog and then he goes mad and throughout the book there seems to be this connection between these like violent predatory animals and masculinity and so I kind of read it as like him being bitten as his inability to break out of what was expected from masculinity at this time and place and how that maybe ruined their, was ultimately what destroyed their relationship. I haven't really Mm. thought this one through all the way. I just finished the book today before we started recording. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like it, though. I love thinking about that. And, of course, you bring up a really good point here about the masculine and feminine dichotomy that Hurston's really exploring through this novel because she's totally examining gender roles. I mean, with all of the commentary about marriage and especially Jody and the male characters in that village and community they're always talking about women's place and they are silencing the women and it's you can definitely see where she's making a commentary on how limiting marriage can be and I mean it seems like she's she is arguing Even though Janie wants love in marriage, it seems like Kirsten is arguing that marriage is a bit of a prison for women and that the only way to be independent and free is 
to be outside of marriage, especially if you can get married and (laughs) get all the property after he dies. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that I found very interesting in terms of the discussions about gender and gender roles, and correct me if I missed something, but I don't recall any discussions of motherhood, of Janie wondering whether or not she wants to have children. And I found that to be, again, super ahead of its time. Like, she she wants love. She wants good sex. She wants to be precious and treated well. But she doesn't have to – she doesn't seem to – at least voice an opinion about whether she wants to be a mother or not. It's just not really a factor. I found it so refreshing yeah. to read a novel where gender roles are examined and femininity is at the center, but it's not tied to motherhood. Yeah. And yeah, I, I loved that. There was no mention. It wasn't even like there was a mention of her not being able to have children or trying with any of her husbands or anything. There was just no mention of it whatsoever. And I feel like that puts it in a really unique place when we think about feminist literature. And I mean, I was, I kept kind of thinking about The Awakening Mm -hmm. because Edna is in a marriage where she's unhappy and she feels stifled and she goes off with another man. But the themes of motherhood are so heavy in that book and motherhood is at the front of it and then reading this book just felt so much fresher yeah I completely agree I I loved that and I kept waiting for it because I I think it's just so ingrained in my reader brain that any discussion of gender roles will require a discussion of motherhood yeah I found that really interesting and refreshing and I haven't read enough of Hurston's work to know if this stands out in that way or if it's sort of consistent across her works but yeah it's definitely worth noting and surely has to be intentional yeah yes this is a writer where it seems like every single word is intentional so absolutely well I feel like we could talk about this book for literally hours and Listeners, we do not say that about every book (laughs) we discuss. (laughs) But before we get into our pairings, did you want to talk a little bit about connections you made between Their Eyes Were Watching God and some of the other classics we've read so far? Yes. So I definitely was thinking about Beloved, especially because the – I don't know which version – of Their Eyes Were Watching God You Read, but in the foreword of my copy, there was a mention of um, how in Beloved, Baby Suggs preaches the sermon that Nanny never got to preach and that she's sort of carrying on that tradition and going forward. And I loved that, but I also just thought that the examinations of femininity sort of threaded through Beloved as well, and you can see them being tied back to Their Eyes Were Watching God. Yeah, I I totally agree. I, I think I have a different edition that I read. We have not done an Alice Walker book yet. We absolutely will. But the cover of mine 
it has an Alice Walker quote that says, there is no book more important to me than this one. So simple and just, you can, it really helped me connect this book to the color purple, which I didn't offer as a pairing because I want to cover it as a classic. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that if you have read and liked Their Eyes Were Watching God, you would probably love the color purple and vice versa. I also noticed some connections with passing this novel deals with colorism. Yep. Janie is lighter skinned. She has a certain type of hair that is coveted. And at one point, there's a woman, just an acquaintance of hers, that is even more light skinned. And Hurston writes about how she seems to be hanging out with Janie because of Janie's sort of proximity to more whiteness and more of her like quote white qualities and so Hurston's very much discussing race and colorism in here and so I was just thinking about passing especially in those passages with that specific acquaintance yeah of course we love making these connections and it's just it's so fun that the more we read for the podcast the more our discussion of books is going to become this web where we're seeing connections between all sorts of things and that makes me so happy yes and at the beginning so at the beginning of this book Hurston says that Janie saw her life like a great tree and leaf with the things suffered things enjoyed things done and undone dawn and doom was in the branches and so I can't help but think of all of these amazing seminal works of literature by black women as the tree with all the branches but this one seems to be the trunk well i think that is the perfect place to move into our pairings although i know we are going to be continuing to talk about this book off mic for a long time definitely okay so sarah i couldn't help but glance at your pairings and your first one is one of my favorite books of all time so i really want you to talk about that one first Okay, it's it's one of my favorite books of all time, too, and I felt a little bad. Actually, I, I put that in there just as like a sample when I was showing Michelle, who's our new assistant who's helping us out, what our outlines look like. I thought I'd taken it out because I thought you might want to talk about it, and then I went back and looked, and, and it looked like I just like staked my claim on this book. So... I apologize. <laughs> but just consider it a cosign. Okay, yes. And please add on <laughs> as much as you want as I'm talking about this. So this book that's a favorite of both of ours is Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. And I would love to hear when you first read this, Chelsea, but I, I read this in a grad school class called Class Fictions. That was all about the way literature depicts and addresses or often fails to address class. And I just this I just fell in love with this book. And it takes place in the days leading up to Hurricane Katrina. And it follows Esh, who's a pregnant teenager. I believe she's 14 or 15 when the book takes place. And her brother, Skeeta, as they deal with major changes in both of their lives and family strife leading up to the storm. One of the reasons this is a great pairing for Their Eyes Were Watching God is the setting. 
Ward uses the Louisiana heat and the threat of the storm to set this slow building of intensity and just this kind of oppressive tone to the novel. She also uses the the weather and the heat to establish themes, much like Hurston does in, in Their Eyes Were Watching God. Also, Esh reminds me so much of Janie, and I had not made this connection before. Esh is imaginative. She's maybe not quite as romantic as Janie, but she still really wants love, and she wants to be the heroine of her own life. She's She spends much of the novel thinking about Greek mythology and who she might be, and she's trying to figure out what it means to be a woman and a mother, and additionally, it's very much a coming-of-age story. So unlike Their Eyes Were Watching God, which spans decades, this book takes place over like 12 days. So it's a very different um, span of a coming-of-age story, but it still has that same feel. It also, of course, looks at race and class. I read it in a class fictions course and masculinity and femininity. So, so many thematic connections with their eyes were watching God. I kept thinking about Esh with Janie too. I And I don't think that's coincidental at all. I'm sure she's an echo, yes. but the tone of their eyes were watching God, whereas we talked about it's to be slowly savored and take in the dialect and really experience it. Salvage the Bones is just as vivid, but it is propulsive. I could not stop reading. I had to turn the pages. It's super high stakes. The Hurricane Katrina setting is just so terrifying and just like I said propulsive that you just have to keep turning the pages and you have to know what's going to happen to the characters and Hurston also writes a hurricane scene but it's just it's just a totally different tone and voice so it's really fun I think it would be really fun to read those books back to back I agree it it, reading this made me want to do a reread of salvage the bones I love that book so much and I Ward is going to be I mean she's won two national book awards her books are going to be classics and you can see the connections to so many southern works of literature and of course I love that too all right Chelsea what is your for well we can count that as both of our first yes (laughs) (laughs) what's your next pairing my next pairing is so I just I couldn't pick one book by Beverly Jenkins, so I'm just recommending Beverly Jenkins as an author. Any of her books that you pick up would be great companions to their eyes for watching God. So the thing that I love about Janie is she demands the love not only that she wants, but that she deserves. She deserves the love of a lifetime like everyone does. And she's romantic and she's a dreamer and she doesn't just want a marriage of submission. She wants that marriage of equals. And I love recommending books that the characters of our classics would enjoy. And I think that Janie would adore Beverly Jenkins. I couldn't even recommend a specific one just because 
Beverly Jenkins is so prolific and any of her books will sort of fit the themes that I think Janie would be looking for. So I'm still working my way through a lot of Jenkins' work, but Beverly Jenkins is an incredibly famous black romance writer and the heroines of her books are headstrong, independent, and I would say they definitely feel like descendants of Janie herself. And generally, both the hero and heroine of Jenkins' books are Black. And I feel like that's important here. She is specifically writing Black love stories. And her historical detail is impeccable. It's incredibly well-researched and just so detailed. I'm always delighted by her books because they're love stories. They're fun to read. And I learn a ton of history. So a couple of titles that I would recommend from Beverly Jenkins, Indigo, which is set on the Underground Railroad, and Rebel, which I read more recently, is set after the Civil War during Reconstruction in New Orleans, and a contemporary romance series, Blessings, features a small town in Kansas that possibly could be reminiscent of the small town in their eyes were watching God, but... Just in general, Beverly Jenkins' romance novels seem like the books that Janie needed to read in order to figure out exactly what she wanted and deserved. I love that so much. All right. Oh, your next pairing is another one of my favorites. Your pairings are so good. (laughs) So we just talked about this one on our Buzzy Summer Books episode, so I'm not going to go into too much about it, but... My next pairing is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. So this is a chunky historical work of nonfiction, and it's about the Great Migration. So it spans pretty much from 1915 to 1970, and it includes a lot of historical detail. Wilkerson is such a good researcher and writer. But she primarily tells the history of the Great Migration through the lives of three individuals who all left the Jim Crow South for elsewhere, but from different places and at different times, which I think is really cool. She has somebody who left in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s from three different southern states. She tells their life stories. So in addition to being just a really wonderful story about hope and family and love and loss and the pursuit of a dream, the book provides excellent context for their eyes who are watching God. One of the individuals Wilkerson follows begins their story in Florida. And for me, when I was reading this book, it made me realize how little I knew about the racism and segregation of Florida's history. I just, I don't know why my brain had always excluded Florida from the the Jim Crow South and how very wrong I was was made apparent to me when I was reading this and and so it's great context for for this novel I just think that everyone should read this book every person particularly every American it reads so nicely I mean it's somewhat dense history it's a somewhat hard subject matter but man it's just a great read it's compelling. Wilkerson's writing is fantastic. I have not talked to a single person who's read this book and not loved it. So highly recommend. And I know you co-signed The Warmth of Other Suns. Yeah, it's just great storytelling. Yeah. 
And I've heard also really good on audio. I listened to some of it on audio. I loved it, but same thing happened to me with Their Eyes Were Watching God. I just wanted to underline so much. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe good to go back and forth. Definitely. All right. What's your next pick? Okay. I have a celebrity memoir. Fun. And so I, I feel like that's a little different from my usual recommendations here, but... My next pairing is We're Going to Need More Wine, Stories That Are Funny, Complicated, and True by Gabrielle Union. And as their eyes were watching God opens, we meet Janie through the eyes of her friend Phoebe, and then the rest of the book is Janie telling her life story to her friend. And she tells about her triumphs and her failures and loves and losses and secrets. And so I was reminded of one of my favorite memoirs, We're Going to Need More Wine. And in her memoir and essays, Gabrielle Union tells this really great mix of juicy Hollywood stories and really personal details all under the themes of power and race and gender and feminism and celebrity itself. And listening to this book on audio really did feel like listening to a friend tell her stories over a glass of wine. Union, of course, narrates it herself. And she's wise. Her stories are really well told. She is really politically active and her politics and her feminism runs throughout her essays in a really clear but not like hit you over the head kind of way and I just think it fits with so many of the themes covered in Their Eyes Were Watching God and it's also just a really good summer read so that's We're Going to Need More Wine by Gabrielle Union. That sounds great. I don't think I knew that Gabrielle Union had written a memoir. It's really good. I I mean, I would like to think that she's an excellent writer and wrote all of her essays herself. I just don't know for sure. I know a lot of celebrities use ghostwriters. So either way, it's super well-written and, of course, well-read by the narrator. Yeah, that sounds fun. I'm, I'm going to add that one to my list. Definitely. I think you'll really like it. Yeah, it sounds like I, I will. Plus... Jessica Simpson convinced me this summer that I love celebrity memoirs. So yes, I well, and uh, there's definitely an essay about Bring It On. Oh, great! <laughs> and <Sold. laughs> she ends up discussing the cultural appropriation, and she talks about her struggles with like not having a hairdresser on set who knew how to do black hair, so she had to like do it herself. And there's just all sorts of oh, behind wow. the scenes things that are so worth reading. Oh, so that sounds that sounds great. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm also excited about your final pairing here. So my final pairing is Sister Outsider by Audre Lord and this was published in 1984 and is definitely an enduring work of literature so it is a classic so usually we pair things with more contemporary reads but this one just I couldn't stop thinking about some of Lord's ideas and prose when I was reading so I'm going for it so one of the things that I kept thinking about while I was reading was the Audre Lorde quote the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and I, I think their eyes were, and I'm still processing this, but I, I do think that their eyes were watching God 
critiques some of the characters who whose behavior is aligned with white capitalist values. So like Jody and Nanny who want that economic advancement kind of at the at the cost of love and authenticity. So that was running through my mind and additionally I I think Sister Outsider really has wonderful discussions about the erotic and the feminine erotic and feminine sexuality. And Lord discusses that more through an exploration of queerness, where that doesn't really ring true with Their Eyes Were Watching God. I, I do think that Their Eyes Were Watching God seems to suggest that feminine sexuality is more realistic and pleasure and pleasurable outside of the constraints of patriarchy so I, I just saw so much of lord's philosophy and theories and ideas rooted in this text or at least connected to this text that's that's why i i picked it i guess i didn't really say what sister outsider is it's a collection of 15 of lord's essays and speeches and it's hard to summarize this without it being like a laundry list of ideas that she tackles and explores, but she she addresses race and class and gender and sexuality. It's a seminal work of black feminism. It discusses violence against women and it discusses love and different kinds of love and different forms of expressing love. I just read this for the first time earlier this year. I'd read essays of hers before, but not the whole collection. And I'm really glad I read the whole collection and just kind of saw her how her thinking evolved and how her writing evolved. I will say with one little caveat that I didn't love this one on audio only because it's a collection of essays that were published other places. And so she has, of course, some very similar language and ideas in many essays and so listening to it felt a little repetitive whereas if you're reading it on the page you can kind of skim some of the repetition but it's a slim work it's I think if you consider yourself a feminist it's required reading probably if you don't consider yourself a feminist you should really read it but it's just a wonderful wonderful work I love that you tied this to their eyes were watching God. And I, I mean, we kind of talked about how ahead of her time Hurston was, but I didn't even think about how absolutely radical it is that Janie doesn't care about money. She doesn't care about that financial security or the sort of striving and achieving, especially that Jody longs for or the power even, but that she just wants the the power of love and those like basic human needs being met. And I didn't really think about how absolutely radical she is. She really is. We love Janie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chelsea, what is your final pairing? My final pairing actually is a great companion to Sister Outsider as well. I feel like a lot of these pairings are super in conversation with each other as well. 
my last pairing here is Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. And I started listening to this book on audio, quickly realized I need to have a paper copy so I can highlight and underline. That is the theme and of today's episode. <laughs> yes, it really is. I haven't picked one up yet. So this is like my reminder to myself by speaking it to the listeners and also a wholehearted recommendation. And I first picked this up because of Jamie's review. She's at Absorbed in Pages on Instagram, and she posted a rave review. So I'll add that link in the show notes. And then I'll add her review of Salvage the Bones as well, because she just posted a really powerful review about that one, like last week. Yeah, I loved that review. So Kendall's collection of essays serves as an intersectional antidote to white feminism, and argues for putting issues like food insecurity, accessible medical care, other basic needs at the front of the movement in order to benefit all women. And I hadn't noticed this before, but as I was looking it up, Gabrielle Union actually wrote a blurb for the book. And so that makes me feel good about recommending them together. And I pair this with Their Eyes Were Watching God because Hurston's classic is often labeled as one of the first works of Black feminist literature. And I know we've recommended Eloquent Rage, which is also specifically about Black feminism, but I would hate for our Black feminist pairings to stop there. We need to keep reading and recommending Black feminist literature and nonfiction, and Hood Feminism is definitely a must-read. I'm so excited about Hood Feminism. I downloaded a copy from Libro FM, and they were doing this really cool thing where if you purchased an anti-racist title, they sent you a link to gift that same title to somebody else. Oh, cool. Yeah, so maybe we can do a giveaway of that. Actually, that would be great. But I also wanted to get a paper copy because I knew I would want to underline it and because the cover is gorgeous. It is a really pretty book. All right. Well, I love that all of our pairings are talking to each other. That makes me proud. (laughs) Yes, it makes me so happy. And I am really curious to hear about your pick of the week and where that fits in with all of this. Okay, well, I'm changing my pick of the week from what's on the Ooh, outline, okay. just to, to throw you a little <laughs> little twist. So as we were talking about our experiences reading this book and taking it slowly, I decided that my pick of the week needs to be Jacqueline Woodson's TED Talk, What Reading Slowly Taught Me About Writing. Have Ooh, you watched this? I haven't. Okay, so of course I had to get Jacqueline Woodson into yeah, of course. <laughs> this episode. <laughs> this talk is so lovely. She talks about growing up as a slow reader and kind of her insecurity around that or just sense of self around that, but then how ultimately she came to view reading slowly as this power that enabled her to become the writer that she is. And and she also talks a little bit in this about how even though her books are often so slim, she does not want people to rush through them. She wants people to, to savor them and hear all of the language aloud or, you know, aloud in their heads, as we mentioned. Um, yeah, so I, I love this. I, I love showing it to students. And 
just love hearing her experience as a reader and writer. And that's just, you can find it on YouTube. We'll link to that in the show notes. I love that. I definitely need to watch it. Yeah, it's so good. And she, I actually got to see her at NCTE speak of maybe five years ago. And this was like before I had read anything she'd written. I didn't know who Jacqueline Woodson was, which now as like a super fan, I'm ashamed of. But (laughs) yeah, she talked about some of these similar ideas at NCTE and how allowing and encouraging students to savor language is so important. So I loved that. How about you? What's your pick this week? My pick this week is a list. It is the Zora Canon. And the Zora Canon is a list of the 100 greatest books written by African American women. And it goes from, let me see what the start date is. So from 1850 all the way up to present day. And of course, there are more books that could be added to the Zora canon, but this list of 100 is really good. There are some incredible books on this list. It's a great resource for if you are looking to read more Black feminist literature, and the list itself is just so well put together and beautiful. I'll def- Obviously, I'll link to it in the show notes, but <laughs> it's just so well designed as well, but It has some of our favorites, like Passing by Nella Larson, and of course their eyes were watching God because it's called the Zora Canon after Zora Neale Hurston, and uh, Jasmine Ward is on here, and it's really fun to scroll through the list and see the literary journey from 1850 all the way up to now. I love this list. I know we've both bookmarked it for our own reading and for podcast ideas, I also love following them on Instagram because they post a lot of quotes from these texts and and other book ideas. All right. Well, that wraps up our conversation for today on Their Eyes Were Watching God. I'm so glad that we got to read this one and discuss it this summer. And I feel like we barely scratched the surface on it. So we'll probably have some more off-mic discussions on this one. Absolutely. For even more classic lit enthusiasm and podcast news and pictures of books and our dogs, <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod, and we're on Twitter at Novel Pairings. We would love to know whether you pick up Their Eyes Were Watching God or any of the amazing Black feminist books we mentioned today. So feel free to tag us when you post on Bookstagram or send us a DM about what you picked up. And we would also be so grateful if you told your friends about the Novel Pairings podcast by posting about us in your Instagram stories or sending your friend a text message that says, hey, listen to this podcast, or even writing a review on Apple Podcasts and giving us a little star rating on there. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music and to Michelle Timmons for her assistance on this episode. Next week, we'll be back with a summer books and wine special featuring Jamise Harper of At Spines Vines and At Diverse Vines. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading much sooner one tires of anything.